Vlad here. Welcome to Cat Pick Fridays, episode number 30. And once again, I'm joined by Mr. Richard Morgan, who's peace signing us or something like that. Are you at peace today? Yeah, we're doing this an hour earlier and I feel peaceful. The the bliss nice. of having slept in a little bit, got up and shuffled out of bed to join you on the podcast. Yeah, a peaceful nice. joy or something. I, I, I wouldn't say this isn't the worst way to start the morning shooting the Cat Pick Fridays episode. I guess there's better ways as well. Uh, let's not yeah, dive the, into that. there's worse ways. <laughs> there's probably better ways, but those are not to be discussed here. Yeah, that is true. Thank you so much for listening, watching, subscribing, commenting, liking, all of those things. Uh, seeing some nice growth on the podcast side of things, especially as of late. So that's really cool. And... As always, I want to remind you that this episode is available both on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I'm pretty sure you can listen to the show on the Podbean app as well. And I want to also remind you that if you want to be part of the questions and comments thing and want to kind of post your question more anonymously, you can email us at podcast at catpickstudios.com. Also, if you uh, one of companies who produces something that's related to what we do here and want to work something together, hit us up at that email address as well. And a bunch of stuff in this episode as well, <laughs> as always. Uh, we're going to dive into the Boss IR200 and SY200 pedals that were released like, feels like five minutes after we <laughs> stopped shooting our previous show. That seems to happen a lot to us, by the way. There's a very loud plane outside right now, so excuse me for that. I can't tell it to stop making noises. Then I don't know why I'm looking outside. It's outside your house, not mine. Oh, we're in two different yes. countries, but yeah, I checked That's anyway. True. Thank you. Just, just to make sure. And we're going to talk about the orange super... Crush 100. Yes, I somehow like forget this super before the crush. <laughs> Something like that. Sir PT100 plugin that it is now like a standalone thing or like it used to be tied to universal audio hardware. Now it isn't. I have a lot of experience with that plugin. So we're going to dive into that in a bit as well. Fender Hama Okamoto Katana Bass, like a literal bass that looks very funky and interesting. And Fender Squire, Classic Vibe, Late 50s Jazzmaster, Fender, LTD Noir, 2021, Made in Japan editions. And in Albums of Our Lives, there's a very, very influential album. Oh, like, that was super influential album for me. And I'm not going to reveal it just yet because I want to get Rich's initial reactions. And also The Weekend Watch is closely tied to that band and that album as well. So if you want to see slash hear what's my pick, you'll have to either jump to that section using the timestamps in the in the in the show notes. Indeed so you will. <laughs> Indeed you will. Yes. Timestamps exist both on podcast platforms in the show notes or on YouTube. You can jump to the section you really really want to get to but enough of me talking here let's jump to 
things that happened recently. Oh, look, I messed this up again one of these days. I keep saying that. Okay, let's go. Oh, yeah. Almost made everything perfect, but not quite. Boss Move. introduces... IR200 capsin pedal and SY200 synth pedal and we are checking out the Gearguts article. So I have to say uh, the IR200 isn't really just a capsin pedal because it seems it also has a bunch of stuff from the, is it the GT series of pedals? So there's a GT1000, yeah. then there's a GT1000 core, which is like a smaller unit and basically like your helix slash head rush slash axe effects floor kind of equivalent and now they have this boss has this uh, 200 range pedals basically two foot switches but still like super super powerful and there's an aya 200 which is capsim and some amp simulation as well and then sy200 that's synthesizer stuff and <laughs> Boy, that synthesizer thing is amazing. I checked out some videos and it's it's crazy. Yeah, I agree. I've checked out some videos as well. For me personally, more interesting is the IR200, which is possibly another nail in the death of the guitar amp because we're seeing more <laughs> and more companies come out with pedals that do what amplifiers did. Yep. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, this pedal is not a loud thing. You know, it doesn't have a speaker attached or anything like that. But it follows in the pathways of the Strymon Iridium or the recent Walrus Audios offerings. Uh, the Humboldt simplifier in offering everything you need in a signal chain to make a great sounding guitar. You know? Yeah. And it looks very interesting. At the same time, I've seen that these two pedals are both priced well above the rest of Boss's 200 range, which includes oh, an true. overdrive, a delay, and a modulation pedal at the moment. And you also mentioned the GT series and the core. And I've seen people saying online that you can basically buy one of the Boss core units and get more functionality than the IR200 for a lot less money. And I don't know if that's true, but perhaps you know a bit more than me. I don't know. Is the GT Core... How much is it? Let's check. Because... Uh, or maybe it's a little bit more, but with way more functionality. Maybe that's uh, what It's uh, 611 euros at Thoman. Whoa. Okay, so it's more. That, that That's interesting because this is priced at 399, so I'm going to say it's probably 400 euros as well. Yeah, okay, so a third more as opposed to a third less, but with much, much more functionality overall. Okay, this is... I'm gonna say, like, Boss usually... I'm purely like, going off a forum that I read. <laughs> so no, no, I but hope that these guys right, are gonna like, get right. There's, there's more foot switches. Well, one more, but still. And I'm guessing, obviously, there's going to be more I.O. as well. Interesting. Yeah, because this also has two, like, loops as well. The GT1000 core, that is. And it's yeah. 611 euros. Okay, gotta say that. I, I'm going to agree with the forums for once. 
So, well, we don't know exactly what is contained within within the two boxes. Does the 200 perhaps have better IRs or more modern kind of algorithms inside it? Does it give you the option to use more processing power, more more features simultaneously? I'm not sure yet. I mean, we haven't had the chance to play these two pedals. I don't think they're available for quite a while, so it will be a while before we get to test them. But it looks like a great thing. Just, you know, without the context of other pedals or anything like that, it's another exciting product. And I really like the 200 series from Boss. I have the OD200, the Overdrive one. I'd like to get my hands on some of the others. And I just think they're great. I love the size of them compared to how many sounds and options are within them. They're built very solidly. They're super cool things. But the Overdrive, I think I have it behind me, actually. Hang on. Ah. Yep, very practical. It's right here. So you can see roughly the size of these things. They're quite small. Really solid metal chassis. The the knobs feel good. There's plenty of memory. Lots of options to save up to 128 different presets, MIDI compatibility, etc., etc. They're super cool units, you know, if you're into the modeling thing. And I bought the OD200 to test out the the modeling distortion pedals that they have in their current range, you know. And I would be totally happy to get the IR200 and make it kind of the centerpiece of a a pedal board that doesn't require an amplifier or anything like that and just kind of, you know, a gigging solution on a small pedal train board or something like that. Yeah. I wonder if there's like some sort of... It's either that the IR200 is actually different from the GT series, or it's a marketing thing where they are labeling it IR200, not like GT200, anything like that, to differentiate it enough from the GT1000 core. But, well, the, yeah, the, uh, int- the the 200 series definitely has more of a, a high-end aesthetic, let's call it that. They look kind of... Yeah. They look like they should be more expensive than the the standard boss pedals and particularly the core pedals. I think the GT range also has a bit of a bit of a reputation, almost a negative stigma as being like a beginner's cheap modeler. Which mm. is kind of unfair because you know, modelers today are all pretty good or better. And the GT stuff is very very good indeed, but do they have the same processing technology? I guess they probably do. Yeah, I guess the 1000 seems to be like a next level thing. Compared, to, like it, it looks very similar to where, like, for those who are listening, the podcast version, we're actually looking at the GT one thousand core on the Thoman website, and it looks very similar to what the two hundred series range looks. Though uh, I can only tell by by the pictures, looks like a metal unit, like made out of metal and very similar design and everything. It's just bigger. Yeah, it so, it does actually look very very similar. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I personally, I was more excited about the SY200 just because the whole synth thing is so crazy. And, like, immediately started, like, imagining what kind of things I could do. Like, right now, when I do any kind of synth things, I use Logic's own, like, synthesizers. There's a lot built in, and it's super fun. But it would be really, really cool to get all kind of arpeggiators with the guitar. That would be super, super fun. Kind of putting that in close quotes, like play those on my tracks instead of programming them. 
That would be yeah, fun. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember when the SY1 came out a year or two years ago, and there were demos yes, by people like Ola England and Rabia Massad, and they were super inspiring. I'm not a keyboard player. I'm not a synth player. I'm not really into those kinds of sounds that much. I don't listen to a lot of synth-based music in my spare time, but I just thought that 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 pedal opened up a lot of creative freedom on the guitar for people who wanted to make noises like that. And you don't have to make the mad noises. You don't have to do the arpeggios. You can just make your guitar into kind of a, you know, a space-agey sounding solo device or something, or just bring a totally different tonality to one of your bits of standard music. And the SY200, you know, takes that to 11 with all the different options to save presets, to have more sounds at the tap of a switch. I guess it gives you more different tone shaping options as well. There must be more in it yeah. than in the SY1. And of course, the full on MIDI capability is going to be cool for some people as well. Yeah, no, like I immediately thought of all the kind of uh, worship band opportunities you could, like all the options you could do with this one because. Uh, uh, like bands are very random. Sometimes you get a keyboard player, sometimes you get a guitar player that has some like ambient effects on his board or anything, something like that. But it's very random, and it kind of the ambience thing is part of that sound, whether yeah. I want to admit it or not, it's there. And if you don't have anyone doing that in the band, like if you don't have a keyboard player or like an electric guitar player, like this could open up a lot of options. Especially if you pair it with with like a looper or something, you could create like you could have it loop on the background with the synth and like have stereo synthesizers going on and stuff like that. And um, just inspiring pedal. I don't know if like my brain capacity would be able to handle the amount of options it probably has because all of the boss digital things have so many options so so many options i guess that's like part of the japanese mindset that we're just going to give you all the options because one of those people will want to have that option <laughs> available and if it's there that person will be happy for the rest of his or her life some like that that's the vibe i'm getting from a lot of like japanese made products so yeah yeah i kind of agree uh, with that the yeah. One other thing that I would say about this pedal is that um, I feel it's going to sell a lot less than the SY1 because it's going to be a yeah. thing for people who are specialized in that kind of pedal. You know, when the SY1 came out, it was, as far as I remember, with my patchy memory, not too long before Christmas. And I feel like probably a lot of people decided to ask for it as a Christmas present or buy it for themselves around the Christmas period, because it was just, you know, when it came out, it was within kind of a price range where you could kind of say, yeah, I'll get myself that. It wasn't too much about yeah, what, I think it was less than 200 euros. We're seeing the price on yeah, screen right now of 199 euros, but I think it started life at a bit less than that. And yeah, I, I can I imagine lots of people just, more affordable yeah, as well. I can imagine a lot of people just went out and got it just because they wanted to get a pedal that could give them that sound and just for the novelty factor as well. You know, people like yeah. Ola England got it for the novelty factor, but the SY200 is a much more serious beast. So it's not just going to be for people to kind of purchase on a whim. It's going to be for someone who really wants to get that synth sound experience out of their guitar. And I think it yeah. probably is one of the leading pedals to do that, but it won't cross over into the general kind of 
you know, the general guitar pedal board hype. It won't be a must-have pedal like the SY1 was for a little bit. Yeah, it's just like the the benefit of the SY1 is the fact that it's very simple, no menus, anything like that. Just like all the sounds on the pedal itself, and it's simple enough not to get lost into. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, it's also the case of yeah. with the SY1, you might end up with maybe, if you're playing a live set or if you're a live band or something, you might end up with one or two tracks with a few seconds of synth sounds in your live band. Yeah, And it's kind of like, okay, I can justify having a pedal which is small with not much real estate on my board to do that. It's maybe kind of similar to an octave pedal, for example. You might have one or two mm. tracks where you have an octave up or down or whatever. But with the SY200, it's going to be a much more significant part of your sound and your rig. So it's like, this is really tailored towards the specialists. Whereas I yep. think with the IR200, that's aimed at absolutely everybody. Yep. Uh, one other thing I have to mention is that uh, the launch of this, these pedals has been interesting because uh, the only videos I was able to find was from a few smaller channels, and that's it. Like, very few people had this. There was like one store in US, I think, that feels like they just got those into their inventory and they decided to make yeah. those videos. Didn't seem like yeah. official boss videos. And then there was like two or three that were actually like boss provided me this pedal type of thing. Yeah, it's so. an interesting release that they've done with this one. Do you think that yeah. there might be a possibility that they did something last minute and changed the release date because the NAM show was postponed? Because I was wondering Could if be? this would have been something that might have come out a bit later, closer to January. Yeah. It's certainly Could quite be. early for something that might otherwise come out kind of for Christmas time. Yeah, that's true as well. Then then on the other hand, maybe they will like do several waves of videos on a product. And I guess yeah. this is an insight. Like I've I worked with Boss on multiple products and yet like I've been part of like second or third wave of a product. So like yeah, you're right. I mean, initial release, be... then there's something, and then there might be like a third wave, which would might be, for example, uh, in my case, the Katana Two or Mark Two. Uh, that like that with that one, like I did a recording video with it. So I did like a how how to use it as an like audio interface and like use it as a full like guitar recording studio. Instead of like doing like here, here's all the sounds in the room and stuff like that. We've just narrowly focused on just that aspect, how to use it as a recording interface and stuff like that. Yeah, that and definitely makes that, sense to do it in yeah. waves. Yeah. There's nothing more annoying than going onto YouTube one day and seeing that 50 people have made the same video about the same pedal or the same product. Bende Acoustasonic. That was that was funnily enough the product <laughs> that just sprung to my mind. Acoustasonic. Yes. 50 videos one day and then nothing forever for the rest of time. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm just happy I got to be part of that launch as well. Anyway. Yeah, let's, you did. <laughs> let's jump to the next one. Orange let's wave has goodbye released... to that pedal and move on. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Orange Amps of UK has released a Super Crush 100 amp, uh, which is not a Valve amp. And based on the video I watched on our good friend 
Colin Scott's channel, aka CS Guitars. Uh, it's basically the uh, orange has this kind of pedal board thing. It's not a pedal board amp, but like an amp power amp that's designed to be used with pedal boards called Pedal Baby. So it's just a hundred watt clean power amp. And I've actually tried that one out at NAMM 2019. That's when it was released. I got to do a video with Orange on that and it sounded amazing. It feels great to play, like very, very cool dynamics and everything going on with that. And then you can run your pedals into it. So basically this amp is uh, a JFET uh, transistor preamp or like different kind of shades of that preamp and then that uh, pedal baby power amp as well, according to Colin's video at least. And based on his video, it sounds very, very orange. <laughs> Orange amps do have their own sound, and they yeah. do. Kind of excited. This is a fairly budget-friendly thing as well. Six ninety-nine in dollars. Just going to quickly check if it's on Thoman already. Super Crush one hundred head. Four ninety-nine. That's a very decent price for an amp that's hundred watts. But then it also has like an XLR out that you can run into your audio interface. So that's cool. Oh, does it? That's good because yeah, that's it does. something which Orange, I think, resisted for quite a long time. Yeah. It also, oh, so what else it also does it has have? a switchable reverb and there's an effects loop as well. So it has everything. Nice. Oh, so it's two channels, clean and not clean. <laughs> That's one way to describe it. Clean and not clean. Yeah, okay. Less clean. Yeah, it. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Orange Amp's sound. And this is basically like the drive sounds go for, which is probably Orange's most popular amp, so the rocker verb sound. And apparently the drive channel goes for that sound. So that's really cool. Yeah, uh, there's also a combo the version available, and which is, well, obviously more expensive, probably heavy as something, as all the Orange Gems are. Yeah, it won't but, be that heavy, though, because it's solid state. You know, there's going to be a lot oh, less weighty stuff like Transformers inside the amp. And the combo comes with, I see, a Celestian speaker, a GH12150. So that's a decent speaker in it as yeah. well that probably sounds pretty good i mean solid state amps have come on in leaps and bounds recently i mean i think the foremost yeah. among the bunch in the past few years has been the the hughes and kettner black spirit technology which was exceptionally good when it came out mm -hmm. and it's still kind of a a watermark for lots of other brands but we've recently seen companies like quilter for example come out with some very affordable very decent sounding amps which i haven't played and the orange crush stuff was always good, and now this Super yeah. Crush 100 sounds like it's going to be really, really good because the, the yeah. orange pedal baby on which this is based is a really great sounding piece of gear and very affordable yeah. as well. And to slap this into a 100-watt head or a 100-watt combo is going to be, it's going to be a great solution for people who want to gig with it but also want to use it at home thanks to the XLR out. Are you familiar yeah. with the orange cab sim technology? Because that's what they're using in terms of 
IRs when you plug in the XLR? Uh, I don't think I am. I mean, I've had the Omic Teleport for many years, but that's not exactly the same. Um, no, um, this might actually be a new thing. They, they call it Orange's it CapSim speaker emulation. So perhaps it's something just explicitly designed for this product. Yeah, it better be good. I wonder is if what it's I'm digital saying. or analog. It doesn't. Well, uh, it'll be digital. Based on this article, sure. it's hard to tell. Uh, does it say? Yeah, it just same says Capsim on the Thoman website as well. So, yeah, ninety nine percent of cases that would be digital. But that's okay. Yeah. Can you show us the picture of the back of the amp? Can we take a look at that? Sure. Where's the back? There you go. Yeah. The so there's. Can we mm -hmm. zoom in some? Balanced out and cabs like you can with a ground lift control, I guess. We can't read I it. Guess so. It could it could switch the cab sim off or on. Yeah, <laughs> could it's be. It's too blurry. We can't yeah. read it. <laughs> if you can actually switch um, the cab sim off, that'd be great. I'm guessing I'm actually, hoping I that's... think I just read that it said um cab back and it said open or closed. As if it's emulating a oh. closed or an open back cabinet, which would be kind of a uh, an interesting, quite unusual option to offer. But maybe we're reading mm. that wrong because it's basically impossible to decipher what's in the back of that yeah, picture. There, that's true. <laughs> Can you see the weight of the amp on this product page that we're looking at? Thirteen point eight kilos. So that's decent compared so that's, to yeah, heavier yeah. than I expected for a solid state. True. Head, although this is full size, you know, this is not a lunchbox yeah. amp size. So no. 13.8 is doable. I mean, you'd be weighing in at over 20 probably for the full size tube heads with the transformers and everything like that. So, yeah, or if you had the Rockaway 32 combo as I did, that's like plus 30 kilos. Yeah. Amazing sounding amp, like amazing sounding amp, but my back disagreed with me. So, yeah. The interesting thing about this amp is it doesn't have attenuation. True. I wonder if you can but, play it via the XLR without having a speaker connected. I mean, I guess you can because that's uh, you the feature of most be. modern amps these days, but, which are non-tube especially, but it, it doesn't say, does it? No, it doesn't, but I think Colin mentioned that in his video. And also he also explained really well that uh, with a solid state amp you don't actually want to run your master that high because it like it doesn't saturate it's a clean solid state power amp so like a uh, solid state power amp distortion or like overdrive is not as desirable as on the tube amps well it depends so. how good it is and i mean there are cascading gain stages in this solid state amp so it is clearly built to to clip into overdrive at some point I mean, I personally yeah, I'm just think that, talking like purely about the power amp section. That is because like that 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 apparently doesn't sound good if you like really push this amp. Yeah, well, it definitely so. doesn't on all the solid state amps. That's for sure. But um, yeah, yeah, I also feel that louder solid state amps should have attenuation modes. Like you know, for example, the Black Spirit 200. You can cut that down to two watts, twenty or two hundred. Mm. And with this one, I think it would be practical to be able to cut it down to one, five, twenty, whatever. Because then what you also have is the option to make the master volume control a bit easier to, yeah, to control true. effectively. You know, if, if your maximum volume is one watt, you can kind of really 
dial in the amount of volume that you need in a in a bedroom based setting for example if it's zero to 100 watts if you're playing at home you're literally going to be right down at the bottom and at some point you're going to make a tiny adjustment a tiny little bit more volume and you're going to blow your head off so it's just yeah, that, it's, that it's that kind of thing true. yeah yeah definitely but this looks but great yeah, again like, another thing for us to try i guess this will be at the nam show but it should be because yeah. that's nine months away <laughs> but one would sure hope. This says that it's available in one or two weeks. So, yeah, I mean, this guy, like this kind of thing would look great on my shelf or on like on the background of my videos. Yes, it would. Just saying, orange. Fantastic. If you're listening, it I does. really like the way that it has that orange aesthetic. It looks like the classic full size tube heads. Yeah, it really looks good. True. Indeed. Moving on to next topic, Sir and Pete Thorne have released the Sir PT100 signature plugin. It's now out and available to all digital audio workstations. As I mentioned in the intro, this plugin used to be tied to the Universal Audio hardware. And I actually have an extensive demo of this plugin from the UAD days. So to speak, I think I got the demo version back in the day and tried it for 30 days and did a video on it. And now it's available for everyone to download. And I gotta say, this is one of my favorite amp plugins that I've tried, both like touch-wise, but the sound-wise as well. It just it just sounds really good and it has a bunch of clever features that I haven't seen in other plugins, though I'm not like a plugin expert anyway, but cool things like uh, being able to like automatically cycle through IRs. So you, like you can, like if you're having trouble to decide which IR to use, you can set the plugin to kind of automatically switch to the next IR every, I don't know, 10 seconds or so. So you can play and it will immediately like automatically just scroll through the IRs and then you can stop when you feel like you've found the sound type of things. So that's really cool. Helps you to say that, that there's a bunch of EQ options, three channel, different channels give you so much variety in sounds. And I mean, it's just a really, really nice plugin. Not sure what they're selling it for. Let's see if I can find it somewhere. Uh, it's definitely going for this kind of uh, high-gain plexi type of sound, which I guess mm -hmm. Beats is also the best known for, so it just makes sense. Yeah. But let's see. what, what uh, Introductory price is $80, okay? And we'll later go up to $150, uh, seems a lot. But I'm again not familiar like how much the neural DSP plugins go for, for example. Yeah, I mean they're similarly priced these days for the okay, yeah. for the for the high end amp plugins, you do pay well over a hundred euros or dollars. Yeah. Sure. So it's it's but. up there. But I mean, you know, Pete Thorne is Pete Thorne and he always sounds so good that I think that people will want to get in on that and this yeah. will probably sell well. Yeah. And as I mentioned, like I have no affiliation with Pete or Universal Audio or Plugin Alliance or anything like that. But this thing just sounds really, really good. 
And if you're into the sound speed or usual dial things or these kind of hot rod marshal type of things, and uh, it's also like super versatile as well. I highly recommend it. That's all I can say. I really enjoyed that plugin and now that it's not tied to the hardware, I might actually really consider getting one as well because it's just really good. Yeah, that's a good thing that it's now available to everybody who's not, you know, who doesn't have universal audio stuff. Mm. And there is a free demo version that you can download to try. So yeah, why not give it a go this weekend if you're not watching our weekend watch? Or perhaps after you've watched the weekend watch, depending on what it is, because I don't know what it is. That's true. And like, what I loved about this plugin was like, it's very easy to dial in like uh, studio ready tones. Well, that's where you're going to use it anyway, most of the time at least. Uh, Meaning that you could dial, like, get rid of the excess low end, for example that you don't need on your guitar tracks, dial just the amount of, just the right amount of like high end and mid range and stuff like that. And when you record, there's very little you need to do mixing wise once you've tracked those. So that's really cool. And because it's a standalone plugin, like you can also record your DI while you're tracking and it's easy to come back and tweak it later if you need to for the mix as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I'm a big fan of this. Plugin. Yeah, I see that it also includes presets curated by Pete Thorne himself. So yes, if you've got sounds that, that he's yeah. that he's responsible for making, then you're, you know, the only thing you need is to use the plugin to improve your playing, and you're on the way. It doesn't include Pete Thorne's talent, <laughs> sadly, but everything else that you need. Yeah, I was just about to say the only thing you need to do then is to play as well as Pete Thorne, and good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm happy that this is out. I wonder why it took them so long, but I'm happy that it's out because it's a killer product. And yeah, let's jump to something very, very crazy looking. Fender (laughs) revives an 80s classic with the new Hama Okamoto Katana bass. And anyone watching on YouTube, you can see the bass. This is... The most unfender thing I've seen, besides the ashtray bridge, maybe. <laughs> Otherwise, this is this is quite something. <laughs> yeah, I love it. How would you describe it to people who are just listening to this? Uh, it's like almost like a V-shaped body paired with what? What headstock is that? Like some company seems has like that that type of headstock but not sure is it who? i think mac mull guitars has a headstock very similar oh to that. that's true yeah i'm gonna just gonna have so to mac google mull, that yeah it's a very kind of arrow shaped like headstock and this very interesting looking is, is there like a bevel going on here on the body as well seems like based on the lighting like there's like yep. some sort of bevel thing going on on the opposite body part as well and Kind of P bass pickups. <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> and like originally, this bass was built only between '85 and '86 under the Squire brand name. And yeah, it's 
quite something. Oh, it's also available in Olympic white and black. Beautiful. So I would like love to get it in pink. Yeah, me too. That just that completes the look, doesn't it? But this is just a sure. fantastically idiosyncratic bass guitar. I can imagine yeah. as a live instrument, you would catch everybody's eye in the venue if you were yeah. playing it. But in terms of having it for a home practice amp to be comfortable to play when sitting down or anything like that, you know, this is not going to be the thing for you. But it, it looks amazing. I really, yeah. really like it. Yeah. And it's, me, not, it it's not a like, typical like, thing for me at all, but it just, it it speaks to me somehow. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can comfortably play this sitting down because like the kind of, uh, what's it called? Like the lower part of it also has the strap button. So like you can't play it even in a classical position without the strap button kind of pressing your leg at that point. So... Yeah. Well, let's be honest, this is not a bass to be played sat down. This is a bass to be no. played standing up, rocking out on stages. Yeah. I believe it's only it's available not... in Japan, right? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh will be priced at, what is it? Uh, uh, 159.5 thousand yen, which is about uh, 1250 euros. So it's not the crazily expensive and you might find someone from japan who could get you one and then ship it to you yeah i mean that's always possible and you can order from japanese dealers and i think a few people will take the plunge with this one yeah because it's so different but it looks so fun have you seen the scale length of it i haven't Uh, noticed it in the article yet it looks small for a bass guitar, it looks yeah, very, it very manageable. Yeah. Well, and I guess the other question like I have about it... Bit. Yeah. The, the other question I would have about it is, do you think that there are any issues with Fender releasing this bass called the Katana when Boss has an amplifier called the Katana? You know, we've seen a few cases recently that we've discussed where people have issued True. cease and desist letters to, to stop companies using similar names and similar designs and stuff like that. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, they have released this thing with the Katana name in 85 and 96. So That is a good point. Actually, like, Fender would have the upper hand, I guess, in this case, if it would yeah. go to court. So, and it's also like, uh, do these two products, like, would people be confused that this is a boss Katana <laughs> or vice versa? I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> if you, yeah. Once a guitar, once an amp. and Yeah, but if you yep. said Fender Katana, Boss Katana, True. some people might yeah. be confused. Uh, anyway, yeah, all that, all that aside, this looks like an amazing bass. You know, it, True. you know what it reminds me of now? I look at it a bit more like a Randy Rhodes guitar. The, that's what the black one reminds me of completely. Oh yeah, that's true. It's that kind of sort of almost offset V sort of a shape. It looks fantastic. Would love to yeah. get the chance to play one of these. Yeah, I'm checking YouTube. There's few videos available on YouTube. There's one uh, from three weeks ago, which is from like a Japanese store. And then there's the official Fender launch video. And then there's uh, one called Vintage Square Katana Bass Review and Demo. So 
not a lot of content on this one. And but then again, if it was only produced for a year, I can see why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really cool. More Fender stuff. Squire classic vibe, late fifties jazz master. A quality offset at an affordable price, says Guinness.com. And this looks great. It, like uh, sunburst, that's a tobacco burst, I think, from like yellow, orangish yellow to black type of finish. Gold mm -hmm. colored picard. That's really nice. Uh, oh, there's a white version available as well. White, white blonde. So, yeah, yeah it says, oh, two tone sunburst. That's the official name of the finish. Uh, gold anodized, anodized gods. Yeah. Yeah, these look beautiful. Design, if you, if you like single coil pickups. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you dig jazz masters, you know exactly what these are. And these will these will sell because you know they're priced decently within the Squire Classic Vibe range. The classic vibes uh, seem to get better and better. 439. Wow. I didn't think like Based on photos, these look amazing, and that's a very, very, like, affordable price. Four thirty nine at Thoman. Cool, nine point five inch radius fretboard sounds good. Uh, there's the, oh yeah, it's a popular body, Bolton maple neck, and Indian laurel fretboard with a C profile. It will be interesting to see how. Um you know, we've got the measurements there, but what we don't have is kind of a, a general size for the neck. Yeah. Often the classic vibe True. offsets have much smaller necks than the originals, so they don't really feel like the older ones. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. if these are slightly bigger, but they're calling them late 50s Jazzmaster, so it kind of feels like they might have a bigger neck profile. And if they do, that would be that would be <sighs> wonderful. But yeah, for anyone who is a fan of offsets, for anyone who loves that kind of vibe, these bring that 100%. They look great. Yeah, I love the gold anodized pick guard. They, they look classy. Man, that looks so good. We're looking at the Thoman website and the photos of the two-tone sunburst one. This looks great. Like, if it looks anything like that in person as well, these are going to sell really, really yeah, well. Yeah, lovely, isn't it? Really, really yeah. nice. I like it a lot. Made Design in Indonesia. Backed by Fender. Yeah. And as we talked about in the previous episode, I actually like, there isn't like a stigma on the Indonesian made stuff anymore as it might have been a few years ago. No, there isn't whatsoever. The one uh, question I'd be asking yeah. myself again here is how will the Indian laurel fingerboard look in real life if you buy one of these? Yeah, because sometimes they look true. great, sometimes they don't look quite so good. They look very pale and dry, and sometimes they actually are quite dry. So there mm -hmm. you go. But the one in the well, pics here looks—it <clears throat> looks fantastic. Yeah, the good thing is like this is available at Thoman immediately for four hundred and forty-four euros. So you can order one and check it out if <laughs> if you so desire. So yeah. I'm seriously I like it. Like tempted if I have, yeah, if I wouldn't have a Jazzmaster in the works already, which I still need to finish, just trying to find the time, like I'd be guessing for one of these. 
Like probably in this uh, two-tone sunburst, not the white one. Somehow this gold pickup, big art with the two-tone sunburst just works for me so well. Makes it look classy and expensive. Yeah, it does. It looks really expensive compared to what it actually costs. <laughs> that definitely yeah. be the one I'd go for as well. I would consider yeah. a shell pink one or like a sonic blue one maybe, but there's something about this two-tone sunburst with that gold plate and the black hardware. It just, it comes together. It's really, yep. really nice. Yep. And actually some more Fender stuff. Fender has also unveiled a Fender Limited Noir made in Japan models. Uh, as Guinness mentions, back in black and twice the price. <laughs> yeah, so Fender has launched a series of Limited Edition Noir 2021 made in Japan models to European market. And they are launching a Strat and a Tele all black. Everything is black up on these guitars. Yeah. It's um, I, I, part of the 75-year anniversary celebration. And yeah, these are just very black guitars. And was it a limited edition? Yeah. I think so, maybe. Surely they are, yeah. Yeah, yeah Fender limited edition noir. Yeah, the only non-black bits seem to be the back of the neck, which just looks like bare maple. And yeah, does the Strat have a scratch plate, which is like black, red, black or something? It looks like there's a hint of red. Uh, looks like it. Yeah, there's the definitely like a red plate. hint. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of red going on. Uh, I guess my question would be like, would you get this one or would you just get like, if you want it all black, you can just swap. Pick, like get a black telly and swap the pick card maybe yeah or like is I mean, the hardware also could. blackened just a little <clears throat> bit yeah <laughs> Might it be. looks like it black chrome if that's oh, a that's... thing it's a little bit too black for me yeah <laughs> I mean black is one of my uh, favorite colors but for guitars it's not yeah. quite it's not quite there and these are satin finishes right or are they gloss? But if they were satin, that would be slightly better. The telly looks satin. The strat, I thought, yeah, was maybe does. a gloss finish. Yeah. Uh, what I'm not excited about is the price. Uh, these are 1,200 euros at the moment. Uh, what? Feels a lot because the previous... Uh, by the way, I have to mention these... Oh, no, these are made in Japan, so that's different. That's why, because Aginus uh, is comparing that the previous 2017 model, or like 2017 version was at like 540 pounds, but those one were made in Mexico. These are made in Japan, I think, because M-I-G means made in Japan. Yep, I think. it does. So... It ups the price, but I want to say it also ups the quality and especially how the instruments feel. But yeah, and I mean, also consider, consider how much Mexican fenders have gone up in price since 2017 as well. And it, yeah, for me, it's not really week. that much of a price increase because, you know, you won't get a Mexican yeah. fender for that price anymore. And yeah, we've already looked at a couple of Japanese 
bits of Fender gear today and they cost more than a thousand pounds. They cost twelve hundred or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. There we go. True. For people who want this, perfect. Again, I think it's quite a niche sort of a product, the all black look, but it's pretty cool. It's kind of metal. Yeah. <laughs> but now I want to jump into I, I want to ramble about an album that was very big thing for me in my teens and we're going to do that in the segment that's very new but I already love it a lot called Albums of Our Lives Like plastic on a CD shelf these are the Albums of Our Lives Alright, before I actually reveal my album pick I just want to quickly mention that uh, last week, when you presented your album pick, which was, is it At The Drive-In? That's the name yes. of the band, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I actually listened to the album several times during the week, and I gotta say, I enjoyed it a lot. As you mentioned, it's weird, chaotic, and I, I think a couple, one of the first things I commented to you was like, my throat started to physically hurt a little bit when I was listening to the <laughs> vocalist. Because he's definitely giving his all in those uh, songs. That that that's for sure. But it's also like, I wonder how his voice took, uh, like h- how long his voice lasted on the live during the live shows, type of thing. Because yeah, he yeah, really went for it. Yeah, which I can also yeah, they really gave it a hundred percent in the studio. And I, I also remember that the producer Ross Robinson, he really pushed them to deliver their utmost and to up their adrenaline levels and stuff before they did the recordings. There's a story about how he took the bass player for like a a ride in his luxury SUV or something before they did bass recordings. (laughs) And I think he probably like terrified the poor guy and just like got his adrenaline levels up so far that he just gave this incredible performance in the studio afterwards. But yeah, that's how they did it. Yeah. An amazing record. For anyone wondering, it's in last week's show, Relationship of Command by At The Drive-In. That was last week's album. It, it was really good. So I found a new band to listen to. But this week, mm-hmm. my album pick is this. And this is like <laughs> an actual oh, album. Not, okay. not, not, not like a Russia pirated one. <laughs> you can see the wear and tear on this album. Uh, it's been listened to a lot. And we are... Obviously, talk about the Linkin Park Meteora. Meteora. How do you pronounce it? Meteora. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, going back, like before this album, Linkin Park is actually the band that kind of introduced me to like growling, shouting vocals, like distorted vocals. Uh, crawling, like from the debut album, Crawling was the first song where I kind of. Like, didn't immediately go like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like anyone's like sh- screaming like this type of thing. Like, the song was so good that it kept me listening, even though I didn't at the time enjoy those types of vocals. But we need to check when was this album actually re- released? But, what was um, the album that you're picking today, Meteora? That's not their first album, is it? Was the first album that, called Hybrid Theory or something? Yeah, or is Meteor the first was, album? I, I'm uh, in 2000, so this was in 2003. Okay. March, came out March 25th, 2000, 
three. And yeah, so uh, the hybrid theory had the crawling single, which was one probably still one of their biggest songs, and that kind of softened me to be able to listen to other bands that had like shouting vocals, growling vocals all the way, which then later I went into Swedish death metal and stuff like that. But that's a different story. Uh, but this album was like exactly at the right time. I was like, uh, already in 2003, I already liked these kind of vocals. And I remember being at my aunt's place in Russia. She lives in a big city there. And I had a lot of time like just hanging out at her apartment. She was at work. My other family was like other family members were somewhere. I would just, I would just watch Russian MTV a lot. And that Russian MTV mean that it was it was tied to the actual MTV. And they were playing a bunch of uh, Linkin Park songs. And from this album, Meteora, that is, uh, I think Faint was playing so much on that channel. Then they also had, I, I'm not sure what the release order of these was, but since the album came out in March, uh, this was like maybe June or July, so I think most of the hit videos from this album were out already. So Faint was playing it on the TV a lot. And I was really looking forward to every time it would come. Like there was a time where you didn't have streaming services or maybe even like CD players available ev everywhere. So you sat in front of the TV and hoped they would play that song. That was the time. And Nam was playing on the TV as well, I think, at that point. And I think... They might have a third single that was also in heavy rotation. Maybe Somewhere I Belong, I think. That that probably was in the rotation as well. So at least like three songs from this album was playing there. And I love the production. I love the songwriting. And it's just an absolute classic in every way. Like there were like there's a lot of stuff to dislike about the new metal movement. But this was cool in many ways, like the vocals, the songwriting, but also like I think what new metal did to a lot of kids my age and like around that age was that, uh, especially with someone who was like very much into all kind of power metal and like fast and technical metal, all of a sudden there was this cool band that wrote songs that you could like play with one finger like drop C tuning was like you can like use just one thing finger on your like fretboard hand and do chords and you could still create cool songs with that and it was like a revelation to me as well I was uh 14 or 15 at the time so like just the right age to be able to dissect a lot of the different aspects of this album and yeah I still like it a lot I actually come back to this album every now and then and listen to it and what happened to Chester is incredibly sad. I actually watched like a documentary about them a few weeks ago as well. And and I guess I can also reveal that our weekend watch will be heavily related to this album and especially this band just in general. Are you familiar with the album? Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to then tell us what the weekend watch was, but you're saving it for Not later. Just yet. Okay, yeah. I'm familiar with Linkin Park. For me, yeah, I remember when they came out with the debut album, which was, it was Hybrid Theory, wasn't it? The first one. Yeah. And they became instantly massive in the UK scene. Mm. At the time, I would have been a young teenager. 
I don't know when the first album was released. Must have been 2001, 2002, maybe, something like that. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that just, they were instantly the center of attention in the UK. And I think it was also very cool to dislike them because the new metal scene was <laughs> yes. dying at the time. You know, the rap metal based stuff was kind of going out the window a bit. And they had Mike Shinoda, who was doing the hip hop rap vocals and samples and stuff like that. But they also had Chester Bennington, who had this incredible voice, you know, and yeah. it was his natural voice too. And I think a lot of people thought he would destroy his voice in the same way that you thought Cedric from At The Drive-In would destroy his voice. But I think, you know, some of these people are just blessed to have amazing voices, which are totally natural. And that's just what happens when they open their mouths to sing. So those people yeah. are incredibly lucky. And yeah, it was Chester's vocals, I think, in the anthemic parts that really caught mm -hmm. me in. And there's a song on the first album, the name of which I can't remember, where there's just a breakdown part where he just repeats, shut up when I'm talking to you, which yeah. sounds a lot better than me saying it just like this during a podcast. And I remember that was the perfect thing with which a generation of young kids could annoy their parents back in the day. And that is what Brock music is about you know it's about yeah. disrupting authority which was parents when you're a child and that record was full of great riffs it was full of great songs it was not full of guitar solos and it had some decent lyrics alongside some not so decent lyrics i i feel they're pretty <laughs> hit and miss when it came to lyrics but i still remember a lot of those songs nearly 20 years later and by the time meteora came out i'd moved on a bit with my musical tastes as well but they had so many huge hits. And I think I yeah. saw them, it must have been in 2003, headlining the Reading Festival, and they were an incredible live band. It always used to be really interesting to me how the guitar player used to play with a massive pair of headphones on. I'd never really mm. seen that before. And that got me into thinking about the whole kind of production side of music as well, because of course you had Mike Shinoda with his decks and stuff like that. And I realized that this was something slightly different. You know, bands like Slipknot and Linkin Park were what made me think a rock band just doesn't have to be guitars, drums, bass, and vocals. It can be something more than that. So yeah, yeah a very, very cool band. And yeah, when Chester died, it was, a, I think, a massive shock to the, to the music community worldwide because Linkin Park were such a huge and beloved band in the whole, the whole world, you know? They, they crossed yeah. over into mainstream success. They had chart-topping albums in so many countries. They won massive awards everywhere. And they were a great band, no matter, you know, kind of what reputation they had back in the day. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm away for the next few days. We're recording this on the Tuesday before the Friday, actually, really, really early. But yep. what I'm going to do this week while I'm on the road on my road trip is listen to a couple of those Linkin Park albums and maybe we can discuss it a little bit next week. Which yeah, of the definitely. songs would you say are the best to dive into on Meteora? Hmm. I, I, I'm personally a big fan of the Faint, which is number seven on this album. Uh, mm -hmm. Then um, I like the break. I, I remember liking Breaking the Habit because uh, that also had a very anime style of music video. So, like as I mentioned, like a lot of these songs. I was first introduced to through music videos and that had like an anime style music video and at the time 
yeah, if I was like roughly 15 or so, uh, 14, like this, that's when I started to get into anime as well and like all tied together. And it was really cool. It's different. It's more electronic and uh, kind of introduced me to more like, like, as you mentioned, like I also learned, okay, hey, you can have all this massive, like, like wall of sound type of guitar songs, and then you can do like an electronic song in the middle as well, and <clears throat> that was really cool as well. So those two faint uh, breaking the habit, but uh, yeah, I think also don't say, which is there's like a intro thing and then it kind of transitions into don't say I think don't say is a great great way to like great example of how to start an album and like really really punch you in the face so to speak <laughs> so that, that that's, that's a great song as well and just looking at this song list there isn't that many songs that I kind of skip on this album most of these are good it gets maybe a tiny bit repetitive by the end with the like core chords they choose for their songs, like they kind of repeat a little bit. Uh, at the end, like you kind of get similar choruses. Let's put it that way. I think uh, yeah, well, from the know, inside is very similar to some other songs on the album, for example. But yeah, it was a you new know, thing at, at that time. So yeah, exactly. And during that era, you know, in the early two thousands, I just checked by the way, and. The debut album mm. Hybrid Theory was released in 2000, so we're talking basically yeah. 20 years old now. Yeah. That was when bands still did albums, you know, and there were tracks on lots of those albums that we considered to be almost filler tracks. You know, they might have a group of amazing singles, but there were definitely going to be at least four or five songs which were album only, which were basically not good enough to be released as singles, but good enough to appear on albums. And I think that you notice yeah. that towards the end of quite a few albums. There's, there's, a couple on the end of the At The Drive-In relationship of Command album where you think, yeah, these are good songs, but they're not quite, they don't stand out in the same way that a lot of the others do. Yeah. I just, while you were talking, I just quickly Googled Linkin Park and they've sold over 100 million albums worldwide. That is wow. massive. So, like I said, they definitely crossed over from being just a rock metal band. And yeah, yeah. I, I'll listen to the whole... <laughs> album i think in order i'll give meteor a go as it was meant to be and probably hybrid yeah. theory as well you know you talked yeah. about the first track on meteor really punching you in the gut that's what the first one on hybrid theory did to me that's a song called paper cut which it just starts oh, with true. kind of yeah, this, yeah. this little kind of guitar riff and then suddenly it all just explodes and it's just like whoa yeah this is exciting this is fresh and the song after that is what is one step closer, which of course is the song I was referencing earlier. So there you go. Yeah, two albums to listen to for me this week. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome, revisiting some yeah. of my childhood. Yeah, I'm also look, looking at the tracklist. They had so many like hit singles from it. Somewhere I belong. Yeah, I was a hit single. Uh, I think easier to run was like maybe a little bit less of a hit single, but still, I remember hitting, hearing that. On the radio, Faint was a huge single. Breaking the Habit was a huge single. And the Numb is probably... I think it might be the biggest song on Spotify, at least. Let me check quickly, because that's how I... Like, I remember that be, might possibly being the biggest, like, the most popular song 
from the any like from the whole catalog. Uh, let me quickly check. QTP. Uh, ah, sorry. In the end, is the absolute. It has over a billion plays, and the nom is number two. A billion plays. Wow, incredible. <laughs> I've just looked also at you know the fed the festival that I saw them at. It was Reading Festival two thousand and three, and I'm just going to read you <laughs> the lineup on that main stage during the day. I'll go from Linkin Park, who were the headliners, downwards, just as an interesting exercise in what bands were like back then. So the headliner was Linkin Park. Before then came Blink-182. Before then was Placebo. Before then was Jay-Z. Before them, Stained. Then the Datsuns, Less Than Jake, Finch, Bowling for Soup, and In Me. What a lineup that is. I often look back at old festivals I went to and think, blimey. Amazing. Yeah, I would attend that festival. Wow. The the other headliners of that festival that I was at, Metallica, System of a Down, Sum 41, Blur, The White Stripes, Beck. Damn. What a lineup. <laughs> Those were the days, kids. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah. I mean, crazy. That and sounds... the darkness were also there. Much further oh, down I, on the main I, stage. Well, I'd love back to in see the darkness. But... Permission to Land is one of my favorite albums. I might have re- revealed like I was going to say I could quite the... happily put Permission to Land as one of my albums on this. It's yeah. it's in the second tier for me below like the top ones on my list. Yeah. But perhaps we could do that we, as we a could double, do co-albums of our lives sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so we, our, we can pick that as a yeah. Yeah. Our musical taste is like you know, we're in a similar ballpark overall, but they're quite divergent otherwise. So when we find one album yeah. that kind of meets in the middle then we should oh, yeah. talk about that and celebrate it. Yeah, we're going to actually... Maybe we'll album. do that just... Should we just do that album next week? I know we're kind of spoiling it, but there's so much to discuss about, the, about that album that I'd love to dive into that next. Yeah, sure. Yep. Permission to yeah. land. Cool. Let's do that next week. And actually, let's jump to the weekend watch as well, because as I mentioned, uh, it really, really ties to this album so... Weekend watch. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Video. It's not like we have anything else to do. So yeah, this week's weekend watch, as I mentioned, is heavily tied to the album pick because uh, I'm promoting a video called "The Misunderstood Genius of Linkin Park," and this is by Punkronk MBA. An interesting channel. He does a lot of these kind of essay type of things about different bands, about different music styles. And he takes a very deep dive into Linkin Park and what made them special besides their music, also everything else they were doing. And for example, like I, at the time I didn't realize, but Linkin, Linkin Park was uh, probably the first band that started building like an online community in very early 2000s already. And they did all kinds of things like yeah like online communities uh, they kind of engaged uh, their fans online very differently and i don't even remember there were so many different things that they were doing and this this was a really interesting uh dive into the whole band and i highly recommend this video like if you're like 
just a music fan. It doesn't even have to be a fan of uh, Linkin Park, but like just kind of realizing what a revolutionary band they were at the time. What was the name of the Breaking the Habit? Like that anime style music video and like just overall the whole anime vibe they had in the visuals was very new at the time. Like anime wasn't a huge thing in Western countries at that time. And they were a big part of kind of bringing that culture into what we're doing. Like, yeah, we can see on the screen there's a Linkin Park reanimation. There's like a mech type of thing on the album cover, for example. Just a bunch of like... Uh, Japanese producers and DJs remixed some of their songs and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's one of the things. Just a really interesting dive into the band and how different they were. So, that's really cool. And uh, yeah, just a study of what an amazing band they were. And it's it made me a little bit sad that this band doesn't exist anymore, kind of. Yeah, because just I, I I don't see them ever coming back with another singer. So no, I don't. I don't yeah. think they could. I don't think there's anyone out there who would be able to fill Chester's shoes. Yeah, I mean, of course, they could find someone with a similar voice if they did a search, but it's that's not what it's about. Exactly. This video is really well done. Like. I learned a lot of new things about this band and I think a lot of you people will enjoy it a lot if you check it out. So highly, highly recommend it. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to give that a watch. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's just uh, Hybrid Theory and Chester Bennington's impact. I'm just, uh, he's, he's talking about the visuals of the band. Uh, yeah, they, they also had a record label, which I absolutely didn't know. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I learned so much about them thanks to this video. So, yeah, be sure to check it out. It's a really interesting watch. If you're just music fan in general, you'll learn so much about what they did in their fairly brief career, unfortunately. So, really cool stuff. And, yeah, as always, links in the show notes. But... That wraps up Catwick Friday's episode number 30. 30 of these episodes already. Crazy, crazy stuff. Rich is about to go on a trip. I'm going to switch that angle just for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. And I probably need to start working on some other stuff as well. Hopefully, I'll, by the time this video comes out, uh, my Harley Benton A-list video is out as well. I've wrote some silly, silly songs <laughs> with that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for you lovely people to hear those. So look forward to that. And yeah, as I mentioned, everything in the description, including Rich's video and a bunch of other stuff. And again, feel free to email us as well. And in the description, you can also find a bunch of ways to support what we do, including the songwriting course as well, where you can both support what we do and also learn a songwriting method that will definitely, definitely help you a lot. So be sure to check that one out as well. And thank you so much for watching and listening. Thank you, Rich. Have a nice family trip. And we'll talk to you next week again. Bye, podcast. Bye, podcast. <laughs>